We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Continuing our series through the book of Romans, and we find ourselves in Romans chapter 13. This section of Romans that we find ourselves in has everything to do with practical Christianity. In chapters 12 through 15, we see this sustained application of the the charge that Paul offered up in Romans 12 verses 1 through 2. Go ahead and look back there at that verse. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but by the renewing of your mind, be be transformed by, by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. So Paul here in this section is helping to flesh out for us a vision of what presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice looks like in various ways. And he tells us to do all of this, remember, by the mercies of God. In other words, in light of everything else that's, that he's mentioned in this book, in light of everything that's gone before, in light of the breathtaking grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he makes this appeal. In light of the fact that you have been crucified with Christ and have died to sin, in light of the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation For you who are in Christ Jesus, in light of the fact that the Spirit of God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you and will also give life to your mortal bodies, in light of the fact that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus who is yours by union and spiritual adoption, in light of the fact that you were once not a people but are now a people, In light of the fact of of all of that, out of gratitude, present yourselves to God as an act of worship. Your whole selves hold nothing back. So now he's telling us what this looks like in various various aspects of our day-to-day living. And this passage, he's telling us what Christian citizenship looked like. What kind of disposition should a living sacrifice have towards civil authority, what he tells us. So verse one, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Government is God's idea. He instituted it for his own purposes, and he is sovereign over all. It's not a necessary evil. It's a good idea. The government is a good idea. And we are here under this government for God's purposes. That that means that longingly looking at some other time or place is foolish. God doesn't want you in some other time or place. He wants you right here, right now, under this civic rule, and he has sovereignly placed us here. Verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities... Resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
Christianity and anarchy are absolutely, totally, completely antithetical. You may not be an anarchist and also a faithful Christian. In fact, there's a real sense in which you can't even be a revolutionary and a faithful Christian to the degree that the revolutionary sort of mindset is one of upending and burning down civic institutions. Just burn it all down. That is not Christian. Christians should have the disposition that leans in and is eager to celebrate the rightful authority of civic magistrates. We should endeavor, we should endeavor to be the best citizens around. Not scoff laws, not revolutionaries, not anarchists, but rather civil, respectful, and honorable. And this means, just to make it very clear, this means it is manifestly unchristian to riot, to vandalize, to stir up a mob mentality that's motivated by emotion, the kind of thing that is high in heat and low in light. We see this all over. And it doesn't matter, brothers and sisters, it does not matter if this kind of thing takes place from the left or from the right in the city streets of Portland or at the U.S. Capitol. Christians have no business getting near that kind of thing. Our otherworldly identity means that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal and the enemies that we wrestle with are not flesh and blood. Now, there is a category for godly civil disobedience, as we'll see momentarily, but whatever it does look like, you can be certain it does not look like rabble-rousing. That kind of thing is base. It's wicked, and it slanders the name of Christ. We should be upset when we see crosses and Christian flags at that kind of thing. Verse three, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out the wrath, God's wrath, on the wrongdoer. Now this clearly tells us that the responsibility of civic judiciaries is to administer earthly justice in punishing the wrongdoer. We should consider all of this within the context of Romans 12, 19. We saw this last week, right? Look at Romans 12, verse 19. Paul says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Right? Don't, don't pursue vigilante justice. Never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And then the next thing that we see in Romans chapter 13 is that the government is described as bearing the sword as God's servant, as the avenger who carries out God's wrath. So putting this together, we see that we shouldn't try to take vengeance into our own hands, but we should be content with knowing that God's vengeance is in part carried out on an earthly level by the hands of the state. That's what it's for. Now, it's clear that this is prescriptive and not necessarily descriptive of how every government functions. In fact, Paul, the same Paul, who's writing this letter, found himself in Roman jails almost everywhere he went. 
He was punished for doing good, not for doing bad. Right? So he's not describing the Roman government as it is, but he is describing the Roman government as it's supposed to be for, for, for what God created it to be. That's what he's describing. God's purpose for the government bearing the sword is to punish wrongdoing. We shouldn't resent this, brothers and sisters. We should not resent that at all. We should be profoundly grateful for it. And nor should we try to turn the government or the judicial system into something that it isn't intended for. The sword, the civic judicial system, is intended simply to punish wrongdoing with proportionality. Now, some judicial systems across the globe and throughout history are closer to this God-ordained intend, uh, intended purpose than others. Ours, for example, doesn't get this exactly right. right? It has meted out disproportional prison time for minor offenses that often, in my estimation, are sins that should not be crimes. Right? We see there's a difference between a sin and a crime. On the other hand, it also refuses to acknowledge certain sins as crimes that should be crimes. Like, for example, murdering your own children in the womb. That should be criminal. That is wicked. Regardless of how closely our particular government lives up to its responsibility as God's servant for our good, the point is that that's what it is. That's what God made it to be. In fact, I think it's not unreasonable to assume that Paul and God knew that this letter would make its rounds, which means that it's not just instructive for Christian citizens, but also for magistrates. In other words, it's appropriate for us to say, listen up, rulers. Listen up, authorities. This is what God expects of you. It is God's servant. That's what the state is. It is God's servant. And therefore, we as Christians must show respect and honor to those over us if for no other reason than for the office that they providentially occupy. God put them where they are. Verse five. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This reminds us of Jesus' run-in with the Pharisees in Matthew 22, doesn't it? When the Pharisees came and they asked him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus says, show me a denarius. And they give him a denarius and he says, whose image and inscription is on this coin? And they say Caesar's. And he says, then therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He managed to get his face on this coin, so go ahead and give it back to him, right? The, the, the image of Caesar is on this coin, so render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. And of course, the deeply consequential subtext of this point, render to everyone who is owed Give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. The deeply consequential subtext of this point is that we must not render to Caesar the things that are only God's, which according to Romans 12, verses one through two, is our whole selves. So we give the image of 
of the denarius back to Caesar because it's got his image on it, but whose image is on us? God's. We belong to God. That means that our ultimate allegiance belongs to Christ. The triune God alone is owed our worship. Listen, brothers and sisters, that does not mean that the state gets nothing. Right? There's this kind of deeply embedded American impulse that objects to Paul and Christ here on this point. There's a kind of radical individualism that insists upon rendering nothing to Caesar. But that's not, that's not honoring to God. That the civil magistrates are God's ministers, and taxation is not an intrinsic evil. We should be eager to render to Caesar the things that are his, and we absolutely must not render to Caesar the things that are only God's. So that's this passage in sum. But I think it's important for us to take some, an excursus of sorts to explain the biblical conception of civic government as a whole. Because this passage, this passage, Romans 13, 1 through 7, I have seen used in really inappropriate ways this past year and year and a half. And we need to understand it within the broader context of God's word as a whole, particularly within the broader context of the three spheres that God has ordained for government. The three spheres of government, which are family, church, and civic. The familial, the ecclesial, and the civic spheres of government. And I want to develop three principles about each of these spheres. So principle number one is this. Each sphere overlaps in some ways, but is nevertheless distinct. Each sphere of government, right, family, civil, um, and church, Each sphere of government, they overlap in some areas, but they are nevertheless distinct. So, for example, the church can and should inform and instruct and disciple members regarding marriage and parenting. This is what I spend a lot of my time as a pastor doing. Right? That's right. It's right for me to spend my time doing that. But ultimately, the Lord is going to hold families responsible for how they operate. Right? The church must teach fathers and mothers how to be faithful fathers and mothers, but God will hold fathers and mothers, particularly fathers, responsible for how their households are run. A pastor may confront a father about his ungodly discipline of his kids, but a pastor can't go into that member's home and start disciplining his kids for him. Right? So this, this, these spheres of government, church and family, they overlap, but they are nevertheless distinct. Or again, you can imagine a scenario in which a church member is brought through the process of church discipline for an unrepentant sin that just so happened to also be a criminal offense. Now, in that particular case, the church isn't done yet. If it's gone through this process of church discipline, if it's also a criminal offense, the person has to be reported to the state also. And there's some overlap, but there is, some, there is nevertheless distinction. So the state can't come to the church and say, you need to excommunicate this member. Right? That is not their jurisdiction. But we can't go to the state and say, no, don't, pay, don't, don't find this person. Instead, give them jail time. That's their jurisdiction. God's going to hold us responsible for our particular spheres of government. There is some overlap, but they are distinct. Principle number two. Each sphere of government has its own set of offices with various uh, relationships within them. So families 
have husbands and wives, fathers and mothers and children. Those are the offices of the family government. And then churches have elders and deacons and members. And civil governments as well have various kinds of magistrates. So you have presidents and prime ministers and kings and police officers and governors and tribe leaders and chiefs, etc., etc., etc. And then the people are represented in various ways, depending on the nature of the civic structure. So sometimes they're considered subjects. Sometimes they're considered civilians. Sometimes they're considered tribe members. They have various offices. And God has ordained for these various governments and these various offices to have various responsibilities associated with them. So the husband father's responsibility, his role, his responsibility is to be the head of his household. He is to spend himself to provide for and protect and lead his family through self-sacrificial initiative. He's to take on responsibility before God. It's not the church's, listen, it's not the church's responsibility to lead or feed or educate his family. That's his, right? And it's not the state's responsibility to feed or lead or educate his family. That's his responsibility. As the father, that's his responsibility. Now, that doesn't mean that others may not help, but the point is that God won't help, uh, hold those helpers responsible in the same way that he will hold the husband, father, responsible. Likewise, the wife is supposed to be his helper in this endeavor, right? She is to submit to him, Scripture says, which means that she is to have this glad-hearted disposition that celebrates in his leadership. She is to be, according to Titus 2, a homemaker and one who rears the young children. So essentially, she harmonizes with her husband's leadership. That's how she is his glory, according to 1 Corinthians 11.7. So he bows, she curtsies. He leads, she follows. And the children are to honor and submit to both of their parents. That's their role. So you have these offices in the family government, and they have these various responsibilities associated with them. Likewise, the church has pastors who are to shepherd the flock of God primarily through the ministry of the word and prayer. And deacons are to serve the flock of God primarily through the ministry of practical needs to help lighten the load for pastors to flourish in their role. And members, you members, have various responsibilities associated with your office as well. We all, as members of the body of Christ, collectively exercise the keys to the kingdom of God to bind on earth that which is bound in heaven and to loosen on earth that which is loosened in heaven. And we do this in various ways. We do this with church discipline, with bringing in new members and uh, for, in, in bringing in new pastors and removing disqualified pastors from office. And members also have the God-ordained responsibility to submit to their leadership. And there's some overlap here as well because pastors and deacons are also members, right? And we also are responsible for submitting to our God-ordained leadership, just like all of the other members. They are accountable. Elders are accountable to the rest of the members as members too. This, by the way, this is the strength of a plurality of pastors because we are here to remind one another that we're members first. This passage here in Romans 13 
describes what the role and the responsibility of civic rulers is. In short, their responsibility is to punish the bad and reward the good. That's their role. That's the government's role. Now, there are a lot of implications for that, and that's not enough specification to tell us in every respect what a government should and must look like, but it does give us a broad description of what God will hold civic rulers responsible for. This is the standard that God will judge them by on the last day. They are servants of God, deacons of God, ministers of God, who bear the sword in order to safeguard their people and their own creation mandate to subdue and take dominion of the earth. And these servants, they do this, they protect their people. The way that they do this, in part, is by punishing the evil and rewarding the good. That's the second principle. Various responsibilities associated with these spheres. Here's the third. This is probably the most important. In a fallen world, all governments are corrupt to varying degrees. In a fallen world, all governments are corrupt to varying degrees. Now, all I've said up until this point has been a description of the various governments and the roles and responsibilities therein, family, church, and civic. And we saw in that description that submission exists as a responsibility in all of these governments. Wives submit to husbands, children submit to parents, Members submit to pastors, subjects or citizens submit to their ruling authority, and all are to submit to Christ, which means that there is not a single authority on this planet that is not under authority. We all must submit to Christ. Yes, even secular kings and rulers are commanded to submit to Christ. You can listen back on our Psalm 2 sermon in our Advent series for more on that concept. They are commanded to kiss the son lest he be angry and they perish in the way. And so we know that in a fallen world, however, authority is often abused and people rebel against what God has intended for them. What that means is, while God's word is absolutely binding on the believer, no single earthly authority is absolute. No single earthly authority is absolute. Remember, everything that we're looking at in this passage rightly falls under the qualifier of Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So for example, a wife is to have the kind of submissive posture and disposition that celebrates the headship of her husband and delights in his leading initiative. That's what God wants for her always. That's the kind of thing that God wants for her always. But what if her husband's leading initiative is inherently sinful? What if he, what if he instructs her, for example, to deposit millions of dollars that he's embezzled from his company into a private checking account in her name? What if he does that? What if, he, what, if he, uh, what if his initiative is to initiate various kinds of sexual perversions and he invites her to join in? Is she being unsubmissive or disobedient to the biblical command to submit to her husband when she refuses to follow him into sin? 
Absolutely not. Right? Because the only absolute authority is God. And she must obey God rather than man. Now, God wills for her to be submissive. But He does not intend for her to be sinful. And life works best. Life works best and functions according to God's design when submission to her husband and obedience to God describe the same action of following her husband's lead. That's, that's when things are working according to plan, according to God's design, when she can honor God by submitting to her husband's godly leadership. But in a fallen world, brothers and sisters, sometimes you have derelict husbands who wickedly force their wives to choose between following them or obeying Christ. And in such cases, God will hold such husbands accountable, not only for their sinful negligence and their God-ordained responsibility, but also for forcing their wives to resist them in order to stay faithful. Now, if that's true for the family government, it's true for the church government as well. Authority can be abused, and it's true for civic authority as well. Paul tells the Roman Christians that obedience to their ruling authorities leads to reward and disobedience leads to the sword. What he says. But what happens when the ruling authorities aren't functioning the way that God has intended? Right? They are ministers of the Lord for our good. But what happens? That's what they are. Right? That's what they are. I, I am a minister of Christ's church for your good. That's what I am. But what happens when I'm a faithless leader? What happens when the state, who is a minister of God for our good, is a faithless minister? What happens when the good is punished and when the evil is rewarded? What happens when they force on their subjects the choice between obeying them or obeying God? This is not an abstract issue for Paul. The same man who wrote this letter in Romans 8 describes all these various ways that threaten to separate us from the love of God and will ultimately be unable. And one of those, one of those things that threatens us is the sword. Who's wielding the sword? The same people who are wielding the sword here in Romans 13. This is not an abstract issue for Paul. The same Paul who wrote this letter to Roman Christians about the Roman government was eventually beheaded by that same Roman government. What does that mean? That means that either Paul changed his mind at some point about his command in Romans 13, or it means that this command in Romans 13 is not absolute, that absolute authority is rendered to the state. So what happens? What happens when the state oversteps its bounds? What happens when the state no longer demands that you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and instead starts to demand that you give to Caesar what belongs only to God? Answer, you, with a heavy heart, do what you don't relish doing. You disobey your rulers so that you can do what you are required to do. You obey God. You do this without vitriol or malice, you do this with heavy-heartedness and love toward your rulers and pity for the divine wrath that they are incurring by forcing you to do it. This has been the faithful witness of all who have gone before us. What happens when the state tells you that you must bow down to a golden idol of King Nebuchadnezzar and worship? Answer, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you disobey the government and are thrown into a fiery furnace for it. 
Daniel chapter 3. What happens when you're commanded to pray to a pagan king and are forbidden to pray to Yahweh publicly? Answer, like Daniel, you decide to open your windows and pray out to Yahweh in a nice and loud voice three times a day in pious defiance of a wicked edict. Daniel chapter 6. What happens when you're strictly charged to stop preaching the name of Christ even at the threat of being beaten and imprisoned? Answer, you say with the disciples, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And you keep on preaching and you get thrown in prison for it. And then you celebrate that you were counted worthy of suffering for the name of Christ. What happens when you're a Christian in the second century and you're required to offer a pinch of incense to Caesar or pagan deities in order to go about your business? Answer, you refuse to give even an inch of what's God's to Caesar and you're fed to lions in a coliseum for it, for the entertainment of people. Now, just quick side note, you may be thinking that that choice that I just described is an obviously stark choice between idolatry and faithful Christianity, but guys, it is hard for me to emphasize how little of a deal a pinch of incense was for the pagan mind in the Roman world in the second century. This was not an easy decision. Right? The, the, the Christians were viewed as foolish, insolent rebels who were making mountains out of molehills in refusing to offer a pinch of incense. What's wrong with you Christians? Get over yourselves. It's not a big deal. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. It's just a little pinch of incense. Nobody cares. Just do it and go about your business. And they said, no, we won't give even an inch of what's God's to Caesar's. And they were fed to lions as a result. What happens when you're a re reformed French Huguenot in the 16th century and your homes are raided and destroyed by the Roman Catholic police unless and until you convert back to Catholicism? Answer, you keep worshiping according to conscience and you suffer the consequence of a government that, in some cases, besieges your city and you starve to death as a result. What happens when you're a member of the Ten Boom family and Nazi-occupied Netherlands when you are considered an enemy of the state by housing refugee Jews who are being rounded up and brutally murdered? Answer, you disobey your governing authorities in the name of Jesus Christ. You own the title of treason and you get sent into a nightmarish concentration camp for it. And incidentally, you get to see prisoners and prison guards radically saved by grace as a result. We're more than conquerors. What happens when you're a Christian living in the 20th century? under the communist regimes of Stalin and Lenin, when Christianity is illegal. And Christianity is illegal, not by the way, not because they are targeting Christians, but rather because they are targeting dissent from the party. What do you do? Answer, you keep meeting in secret until you're found out and thrown in the gulags where you will likely meet an ugly death. To bring matters back to where we are today, Romans 13 verses 1 through 7 teaches us that we should aspire to be the world's best citizens. We should labor to support and pray for and delight to obey our governing authorities insofar as we are able. 
Christians in America should have the instinctive reaction against the prospect of civil disobedience in general. Our knee-jerk reaction, our factory setting, our impulse as godly citizens should be to submit. Just like the knee-jerk impulse as godly church members should be to submit to our elders and the knee-jerk impulse of godly wives should be to submit to their husbands, etc., But that impulse is ultimately birthed out of a desire to honor Christ above all else. That is the burning heart of this passage. Obey your leaders out of an act of worship to God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, which looks like obeying your leaders. And when a godless civic government starts to insist on rendering to Caesar what only belongs to God, when they whether by requiring what God forbids or forbidding what God requires or overstepping its God-ordained authority, we must fear God and not man and stand up with steel-spine resolve and obey Christ above all else. Now, of course, it's always a serious question about where that line is. Where is the line where we draw it and we say this far and no further? There's a question, and Christians can and do disagree about that. But guys, that line does exist somewhere. And no matter where it is, whenever Christians draw it, you can be absolutely certain. You can bank on it. Christians will be accused of being unsubordinate and unruly, rebellious citizens who are making a big deal out of nothing. They will. That's okay. Now, it's very important that we aren't actually those things. right? We must not actually be those things, but we may not be able to help being accused of being those things. God is our vindicator. Peter tells the dysphoria in 1 Peter 2.12 to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, so that when they accuse you of not loving neighbor, so that when they accuse you of being a problem for society, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation which is not today. That's the last day. That means that Christians may live their lives faithfully and be slandered the whole time and not see any vindication until the end. We ought to be content with that because the the road of church history is paved with the blood of martyrs, most of whom were put to death by their own governments, not because they were disregarding Romans 13 but because they saw Romans 13 within the broader scope of God's word, which requires God's people to always honor Christ. And from that broader scope of the Bible as a whole, we see that the city of man, the city that we sojourn through, the city in which we are mere pilgrims and resident aliens, is also called a harlot named Babylon, Revelation chapter 20. And she wants us dead. Sometimes that Babylon will try to devour us. She may even do this in the name of public safety, whereby Christians are designated a threat to society. I was struck recently by something C.S. Lewis once wrote. He said, quote, persecution is a temptation to which all men are exposed. I once had a postcard saying that anyone who who expressed and published his belief in the virgin birth should be stripped and flogged. That shows how easily persecution of Christians by the non-Christians may come back. Of course, Lewis says this, of course, they wouldn't call it persecution. 
They'd call it compulsory re-education of the ideologically unfit or something like that, end quote. But even if that happens, brothers and sisters, we are more than conquerors, right? G.K. Chesterton wasn't wrong when he quipped, Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. Where do we go from here? My conclusion is gonna be a bit different from this sermon, because this sermon and this passage is a bit different than usual. I'd like for us to immediately obey this passage together by praying for our governing officials. You should pray that God gives us the grace of not having to disobey our leaders. And if he does, if he gives us that grace, he will give us that grace by giving them the wisdom to lead wisely and not overstep their bounds. Now, I confess, brothers and sisters, I confess just to warn you that on a national scale, I'm not optimistic about that prospect. On a national scale, our leaders seem intent to increasingly reward evil and punish good. So we're going to pray that God gives us the grace of not having to disobey our leaders and also that he will give us the grace and wisdom to do so courageously if and when we are ever forced to. And most of all, we're going to pray that God would give us a burning affection and evangelical zeal for our neighbors and our leaders, regardless of the circumstance. Last month, in preparation for this sermon, I sent an email to five people, Missouri Senators Josh Hawley and Roy Blunt, North Kansas City Mayor Don Stilo, Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas, and Kansas City Police Chief Richard Smith. Here's what I wrote to them. Greetings. My name is Sam Parkinson, and I'm one of the pastors at a church in North Kansas City called Emmaus Church. I'm reaching out because in a couple of weeks, April 18th, I will be preaching to our congregation on Romans 13, 1 through 7. This passage is crucial for developing a biblical view of government, and it instructs followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to be respectful and honoring towards those who hold their authoritative positions, since they hold those positions according to God's providence for his good purposes. It is also instructive for governing officials to know what God expects of them and their service. I have included the passage below for your encouragement and instruction. In keeping with this passage and the scripture's general instruction to pray for kings and all who are in high positions, 2 Timothy 2.2, our church will be praying for you by name on Sunday, April 18th. We plan to pray for the following. First, that God, if he has not done this yet, would grant you the grace of repentance from sin and faith in Christ for the benefit of your own joy and salvation. Second, that God would grant you the grace of reverential fear and sobriety that you might heed the call of Psalm 2 and kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Third, that God would empower you with wisdom to serve your community faithfully, that you will be just in your dealings and that your actions and decisions would be consistent with the broad responsibility of Romans 13 uh, designating to governments to reward the good and punish the evil. Fourth and finally, that God would bless you with a peaceful term. Is there anything else we can pray for? We want to be a blessing to you and to our city in the name of Jesus Christ and to the glory of the one true triune God. If there is anything else we can do to be an encouragement to you or a service to our city, please let us know. Respectfully, Sam Parkinson. Now, I didn't get back any specific prayer requests, so we're going to do just that, what this, what this email said we would do. We're going to pray 
And we're going to do that and conclude our time in prayer, just like we do every week before communion at the Lord's table. If you're not a believer, if you're, if you're visiting with us today and you're not a believer, I want you to know that we are so glad that you are here. It's an interesting week for you to attend uh, a Christian gathering. But I'm glad that you're here, and, and I, w- I want that to sink in because I'm, I'm also inviting you not to come to this table. And not because we're against you, but rather because coming to this table, apart from coming to Christ first, is dishonoring to Him and dangerous for you. So we don't want you to pretend to be a Christian. Rather than pretending to be a Christian by participating in this meal, we invite you instead to become a Christian for real. Cling to Christ by faith for the forgiveness of your sin and be brought into this blood-bought family. You can do this even today. And if you have any questions about what that might look like, let us know. Let me know. Let any of us who take this communion meal in front of you, let us know. We would love to tell you about our friend, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we lift up to you Josh Holly, Roy Blunt, Don Stilo, Quentin Lucas, Richard Smith. We lift up to you Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. We ask that you would confront them with the grace of repentance from sin and faith in Christ. Give them the reverential fear to obey Psalm 2, to rage not against the Lord and His anointed, but to kiss the Son, lest He be angry and they perish in the way. May they find Him to be a refuge of safety. Prevent them, Lord. Prevent them from ruling unjustly. Rise up and overthrow any injustice of our leaders and spare them from your wrath by saving them by grace. Give them wisdom to punish the evil and reward the good. Give us compassion for our civil leaders. Give us the heart to render to them the honor they are due as an act of worship to you. And if in your providence you withhold your empowering hand to enable them to rule justly, if Caesar attempts to exact from us what only belongs to you, give us the courage to be like our former brothers and sisters of the faith who resisted injustice to their own detriment and suffered for it. Give us the courage to not shrink back from suffering for your name's sake. Give us that brave resolve by grace even now as we share this meal of communion together. May we be reminded of our ultimate orienting identity in Christ and our ultimate allegiance to King Jesus. God, you have called us a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. We recognize that that nationality is made visible here at this table. We are brought to this table only by the body of Christ broken for us and by the blood of Christ shed for us. And we remember and proclaim these truths today. Give us the resolve to invite many, many, many more people to this table. We dare ask any of these things only in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.